We'll be reading from verses 1 through verse 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. The Bible says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, and then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, you are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. Thank the Lord for his word. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, and I might encourage you to follow along as we spend time together. Last week, we walked through the crucifixion, and admittedly, it is perhaps one of the most difficult passages to walk through, and rightfully so, for it was the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that brings us salvation. To use Peter's words, we are bought with the precious blood of Christ. I hope that you see His crucifixion as a precious thing. The cross is a horrific reality. And because of the cross, we should be coming with the right response of brokenness, gratitude, tears. Those are right responses to the crucifixion. But then when we move from the crucifixion to the fact that He was buried and in the grave for three days, and then He rose again, some struggle with believing the resurrection. There's a number of reasons I believe that people struggle with that, and I'll walk through some of them. But I want to encourage your soul this morning. Christ is our hope in life and in death. My hope this morning, there is an overarching theme that I see in this passage, 1 Corinthians. We'll be walking through verse 1 through to verse 20. And my hope is that you'll see this overarching theme all throughout the passage. And it is this, the resurrection of Christ is the foundation for your salvation. And it is the hope for your resurrection. The resurrection of Christ, His bodily resurrection, He raised in a body. His resurrection is the foundation for your salvation. Don't think, well, the crucifixion, that's the foundation. The crucifixion is a part of it. It is a very important part of it. But if you do not have the resurrection from the dead, you have no promise of your salvation. He'll say that in today's passage. And it is your hope for your resurrection. And that's what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about. And so our my hope for is that as we walk through this passage, that you will have hope, that your faith will be strengthened. 
I don't know, maybe you look at the resurrection and you say, yeah, there was a resurrection and I believe it, just the Bible said it. And I'm supposed to believe it because the Bible said it. And yes, friend, that's a great place to start, but there is so much more than I've just been told this is what I'm supposed to believe. I hope that you walk out of here today knowing Christ rose from the dead. And that's my foundation for my salvation, and it is my hope for my own resurrection. If you're a believer today, His resurrection is your hope for your resurrection. As I come into a passage like this, Paul even speaks to this in some of the opening verses. Uh, There are a number of things that would be standing against maybe some outside influences that would cause us to think that perhaps there was no resurrection from the dead. For you and I, we look at the course of natural history. You might think things like, well, I've never met anybody dead. And so maybe just by the course of natural history, I'm going to have a hard time believing that Christ rose from the dead. You might say things like, you know, dead people don't rise again. I don't have any life experience from that. And even today's way of thinking, today's way of thinking, modern thinking says something like, you believe what you want to believe and I'll believe what I want to believe, but I'll follow the science. It's what modern thinking says. I'll follow the science. And science says that you have to be able to duplicate it. And since you cannot duplicate a resurrection from the dead, modern science would say, natural history would say, there's no resurrection from the dead. Paul's day, he's writing to Greek believers. And the ancient Greek belief at that time is called dualism. That dualism said this, there are spirit things and there are body things. Spirit things are good, body things are bad in of thinking. And so for them to think that Christ rose again in a body would be a bad thing to them. And Paul says, no, wait, you need to put aside your way of thinking. And let's just be honest today. Every single one of us comes to faith in Christ with a background that's not faith in Christ. Every one of us brings, and I can call this a filter. Every one of us brings a filter that we come to think of We see the things in Scripture and we try to interpret the things of Scripture from the filter of our background. Some might be from a different denomination. Some might be completely unchristian. Some might be animistic or spirit-believed. There might be any number of beliefs that you and I come to Scripture with and we try to interpret Scripture with those filters. And the Apostle Paul helps us here set aside those filters, set them aside completely, embrace what the Scripture says entirely, for you can trust the Word of God. I think also of the influence that would have been in the Jewish day. You might remember the Jewish people had two main leaders. They had the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Do you remember them? Jesus' day. And that mentality would have been influencing the Jewish believers, some from the Pharisee background, from, from, some from the Sadducee background. And the Sadducees openly believed there's no angels, there's no resurrection of the dead. Well, that's a problem. Because if you don't believe there's a resurrection from the dead, then there is no resurrection of Christ. You have no hope for eternity. And so Paul approaches with these backgrounds coming in, and he says, wait, there is a resurrection, and there was a resurrection. Some 20 years have passed from the resurrection of Christ until the time Paul writes this letter. Ten of thousands of people have heard the gospel preached. Thousands at least, if not tens of thousands, have put their trust in the Lord Jesus And I wonder... How many people are hearing the gospel, but they're struggling with the resurrection of Christ? It's such a big deal that Paul writes an entire chapter about it. 1 Corinthians 15, he writes an entire chapter. The resurrection of Christ is foundational for your salvation, and it is your hope for your own resurrection. And so I'll have a moment and walk through this. Let's read verses 1 and 2. I see them as introductory to the passage. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you received and wherein you stand. You stand in that gospel by which also you were saved. You were saved by that gospel. If you keep in memory what I preached to you, unless you've believed in vain. 
As he walks into verse 3, he's giving us this introduction of, I gave you the gospel, I received the gospel, you've been saved by the gospel, and the gospel is the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. You take any one of those out, you lose the gospel. Christ came, lived a sinless life, took your sin upon the cross, gave you His righteousness in your place, and then He raised from the dead. And we'll see much about that today. So let's see, verses 3 to 11, what actually happened. So I'll break this into two main questions. Verses 3 to 11, what happened? And verse 12 to verse 20, why does that even matter? So let's see what actually happened. Verse number 3. For I heard unto you, first of all, that which also I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So here's the facts, he says. I, here's the facts. I received them, and Paul in other places is very clear that he did not receive these facts from anybody else. He received them from the Lord Himself. I will not dive into that right now, but if you want to know more about it, you can read about it in Galatians chapter 2, chapter 1 and chapter 2. Paul the Apostle says very clearly, the Lord Jesus showed these things to me himself. That's an amazing statement. And here he says, I received them, I delivered them to you, speaking of the church in Corinth, and you and I received them through the writings of the New Testament. I received them and I delivered them to you and you believed them and what were they? Christ died for our sin according to the scripture and he was buried. You saw that in verse number four. He was buried and then he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And there are so many theories that would try to debunk this. Christ died on the cross. Historical fact. It is historical fact. You cannot divorce Christ going to the cross from reality. Historians outside of Scripture have written about this event. There is no question whatsoever about Him dying on the cross. But as you come down through history, many people have done their best to leave Jesus in the grave. They've done their best. And they've come up with all kinds of theories. One is called the swoon theory. The swoon theory. And the word swoon just means He passed out. And so what they say is, yeah, he was on the cross, and he just passed out, and people thought he was dead. So they took him down off the cross, and they laid him in the tomb, and they thought he was dead. He wasn't really dead, he was just mostly dead. That's the swoon theory. There's a problem with the swoon theory. In the process of crucifixion, he lost a tremendous amount of blood. That left him severely dehydrated. Just think about this from a scientific standpoint. He lost a tremendous amount of blood. He is tremendously dehydrated. Severely dehydrated. If he was going to the emergency department at this moment, let's forget about putting him in the tomb, take him to the emergency department, we're talking about massive amounts of blood transfusions to try to keep him alive. But, according to the swoon theory, they took him down off the cross, laid him in the tomb, and three days later he walked out. Because, you know, that's just normal. It's just normal. I'm, I'm going I'm to play the idiot here for a moment. It's just normal that you would take a severely dehydrated person, stick them in a hole in the ground, cover it up for three days, and he'll recover on his own. There's a thing called the rule of threes. Three minutes without air... Three days without water, three weeks without food. Any of those will put your life at danger. Now take a severely dehydrated person, stick him in a hole in the ground for three days, give him no water. He's not mostly dead, he's all the way dead, and he's drying up. You see, here's the problem. The swoon theory doesn't answer its own questions. There's the wrong tomb theory. The wrong tomb theory says that they took him down off the off the cross, they buried him in the tomb, and then three days later, they went to the wrong tomb, found it empty, and said, oh wow, he's arisen. There's a number of problems with that. Let me start with the fact that Mary is the one who watched him get buried, and the one who came to find him alive. Mary, his own mother. Let me tell you something. When a mother untimely has to bury her own child. 
she never forgets where he's buried. A mother will not lose that. Let me add to that the fact that this tomb was Joseph's. Joseph, the rich man, who has hired people to work on this tomb to prepare it for the day when he himself would die. Now let's just think about that for just a moment. So Joseph has been paying people to make a tomb for him, and he forgot where it was? Come on. Then there's the stolen body theory. The stolen body, and that one actually started on day one. On day one, the chief priest tried to pay the soldiers to tell people the soldiers came and stole the body. In other words, tell people you didn't do your job. By the way, in that day, if you're a Roman soldier and you don't do your job, you lose your own life. So they're trying to pay these guys to put their own lives in danger. Those soldiers were not stupid. (laughs) But here's the idea, the stolen body theory, that somehow the soldiers were overpowered by the disciples to go in and steal this body away and take it and hide it who knows where. And oh, by the way, these men unlearned and ignorant men, according to Acts chapter 2. These men, unlearned and ignorant, who can't get along with each other. Eleven of them didn't even realize that the twelfth guy was a traitor. These guys can't get along. Fishermen, unlearned, uneducated, and they all, every single one of them, goes to a martyrdom over the fact that they stole a body? If the stolen body theory was true, one of them would have squealed before he died. You see, Satan would love, if you can't get Jesus to not go to the cross, as we said last week, you've got to do everything you can to keep him in the grave. For if he rises from the grave, God has put his stamp of approval on the work of Jesus at the cross. And he rose. He died on the cross according to the Scriptures. He was buried and He rose again according to the Scriptures. And I love the fact that Paul's defense for He died on the cross and He rose again was not, hey, go and look at the history books. His defense was according to the Scriptures. So twice He says it. Did you see it in verses 3 and verse 4? Verse 3, Christ died for our sins According to the Scriptures. Verse 4, He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. The Old Testament prophesied that this would happen. The book of Isaiah, chapter 53 and verse number 5, prophesied that He would go to the cross according to the Scriptures. Isaiah 53, verse 5, But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was laid upon Him. And with His stripes, we are healed. 700 years before Christ was born, Isaiah the prophet writes these words down. He will be crucified for our sins. God had it written in the Scriptures many generations before it would happen. And God always keeps His promises And on top of this, God always preserves His Word. The Scriptures preserved down through the generations. Now let me blow your mind for just a second. In about 1946-1947, there were three Bedouin youths, teenagers, three Bedouins who went into some caves near the Dead Sea. Now when they went into those caves, they they were supposed to be taking care of some goats. And one of them was throwing rocks at the goats instead of taking care of the goats. And when he was throwing the rock, teenage boys do this, right? And he throws the rock and it goes into the cave. And when it goes into the cave, he heard something shatter. Something's up. He goes inside that cave to figure out what's going on. And when he went in, he found ten clay pots that had not been touched in hundreds, if not thousands of years. This is... Historical facts. 1946-47. Those three boys go into the caves and then they begin pulling out these scrolls. They have no idea what they've got their hands on. And for a couple of years, they actually carried those scrolls around with them, showed them to their friends, and they ended up selling them for seven Jordanian dollars. It's the equivalent of today's money, almost a thousand kina. 
we're talking about scrolls that date back to before Jesus' time. Some of those scrolls are 100 and 200 years before Christ. 2,000-year-old scrolls. Some of those scrolls contain the entire book of Isaiah. And when they translated those scrolls to today, what does it say? It says the exact same thing that the book of Isaiah says in your Bible. God preserves His Word down through the generations. And 700 years before Christ went to the cross, God said, I'm going to put my son on the cross and it's going to happen for your sins. And Paul goes, I don't need history to prove this. I've got the Old Testament. The Scriptures prove it. And that he would rise again according to the Scriptures. That's Psalm chapter 16 and verse 10. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. David's writing a thousand years before Christ is born. Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. In the voice of the Lord Jesus. Father, you're not going to leave me in the place of the dead. I'm not going to be left there. I will not see corruption. By the way, this week we won't see it in 1 Corinthians 15, but we will see it next week in 1 Corinthians 15. I hope the word corruption is jumping off the page at you. Because the word corruption, you will not suffer your Holy One to see corruption. That's Jesus. If ever there was a Holy One, it's Jesus. You will not suffer Him to see corruption. In 1 Corinthians 15 helps us to understand what does He mean by corruption. He's not talking about stealing money from the government. He's talking about the body rotting. So 1 Corinthians 15 says, this corruptible, rotable body will put on incorruption. Unable to rot away. And this mortal, this diable body, this mortal will put on immortality. Oh, we'll see that next week. We'll leave that rejoicing for next week. So then Psalm 16 and verse 11, thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is the fullness of joy, and at thy right hand there are pleasures evermore. Oh, and by the way, there were also Old Testament, or there were eyewitnesses to this Old Testament prophecy. So the Old Testament prophecy came, it happened, and there were eyewitnesses, and that's what he's going to continue to talk about in verse 5 and following. He does not mention who we talked about last week. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb, talked to the Savior doesn't mention the two on the road to Emmaus. We read about them in the Gospels. He lists some other people. Verse 5. That he was seen, that's Jesus, was seen of Cephas, that's Peter, and then of the twelve. And you remember the upper room, he appeared to them twice. Once without Thomas and once with Thomas. Walked right through the wall. And he came and he appeared to them. And after that, verse 6, after that he was seen of over above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. In other words, 500, an assembly of 500 people met with Jesus at one time. That's not Him going and individually seeing 500 people. That's a single event where 500 people were present at the same time. And He says, The majority of that 500 are still alive now 20 years later. But I do want you to notice a little phrase that he slips in there at the end of verse 6, but some are falling asleep. I'm going to take a moment pastorally and just mention this because he comes back to talk about it later in our passage. Falling asleep. He uses the phrase two more times. He says here that some of them have fallen asleep, and we know what that means by reading the Scriptures. We know that when he says they've fallen asleep, they've died. But I hear the words of comfort coming out when he says they've fallen asleep. Because for the believer, death is not permanent. Brothers and sisters, when we have someone, a brother or a sister in Christ, when we have someone who passes away, We don't weep as those who have no hope. Instead, we have hope because our Savior is risen. So also those who sleep in Christ will rise again. And right now as a church, we're in a period of calm. 
And yet, as a pastor, I need to speak to us in a period of calm, for the day will come when we're not in a period of calm. I don't know why it is, but I've noticed throughout ministry, it seems that when we have those seasons where someone passes away, it seems like someone passes and then someone else passes and someone else passes. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. You have seasons where we don't have any funeral, and then you have seasons when they seem to be back to back to back. And right now, we're in a season where there are no funerals for us as a body. But I want to encourage our hearts right now because the day will come when we will have another season where we will have back to back funerals. And in that day, I will say these very same words. And I want you to hear them even now in a time of calm. We do not weep as those who have no hope, but instead, our brother or our sister who will be laid in a coffin in front of us, our brother or our sister is but fallen asleep. And the day will come when the trumpet will sound. And we will not go before them. They will rise. And they will go to join the Lord in the air, and we too will join Him. And oh, be comforted in the fact that they will not be lying in the ground asleep, just waiting. For to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Instantly to be present with the Lord. Oh, these are encouraging words. This comes from 2 Corinthians 5 and verse number 8. We are confident, I say. These are Paul's words. We are confident. I know it. Deep down in my soul, I know this. I'm confident. And I'm willing rather to be absent from from the body and to be present with the Lord. I'm willing rather. You know what that means? I sure love this body and I sure love being with you, brothers and sisters, but I'd rather be with the Heavenly Father. I'd rather be present with the Lord. So on the day when we lay one of us to rest and on the day when we come to mourn as those who have hope, On that day, we will be excited because we know that this person is enjoying his best life ever. He's left us and he's gone to be with Jesus, which is far better. He says it again in Philippians chapter 1. In the context of Philippians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is in prison, not knowing how much more life he has to live. But in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21, he makes this statement, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Gain. It's better. You you hear the words? It's better for me to just go be with Jesus. Never know me anymore saying me by suicide in me yet, go come up a good place. If you're struggling with those kind of thoughts, please come and speak with us. But he says... I want to go be with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And if I live in the flesh, verse 22, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I wot not. I don't even know which way to choose. For to be in this body, I get to see the fulfillment of the labor that I'm putting into this body. Here's another way to say that. Have you been working a job? Do you want to see the fruit of that job? Of course you do. I pour into my children. I want to see them grow. I want to see how do they turn out. How do they raise their children? I pour into them. I pour into the church. I want to see our church sending out. I want to see the fruit of that labor. But to go be with Jesus? That's pretty awesome. So I don't know which one I want to choose. So which one do I choose? I I don't even know. I'm going to straight betwixt two, he says in verse 23. I'm going to straight betwixt two. I don't know which way to go. Having a desire to depart and go be with Jesus, which is far better, nevertheless to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And so brothers and sisters, when it's time to go be with Jesus, that's much better. And friend, can I say this right now? While we have a time of calm, Cancer racks your body and you lie on the deathbed and you look across, metaphorically speaking, you look across to the other side, you have nothing to fear. To be present with the Lord is far better. Free from sickness and pain, free from tears. To be with the Lord 
to be with those who have gone on before. Oh, the good news is, we'll join you. So fear not death. You are but sleep. So 500 witnesses saw him. They saw him at one time. They were eyewitnesses. Some of them have fallen asleep. He continues on with the eyewitnesses, verse 7. And after that, he was seen of James, and then of all the apostles. And this could be James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. I don't think it is, just simply because by Acts chapter 12, James, the brother of John, has been martyred. The first of the apostles to be martyred. The other James is James the Jesus, who goes on to become the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. He becomes a man of prominence throughout the rest of the book of Acts. And so I take this to be James, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, the half-brother to Jesus. Jesus appears to him, and then he appears to all the apostles. And verse 8, he says, Last of all, he was seen of me also, Paul, as of one born out of due time. I should have not been included, but God was gracious to me and let me see the risen Christ. How that happened, that's only God knows. Paul does his best to try to describe it in Galatians 1 and 2. And then he says in verse 9, I am the least of the apostles, that am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul is very careful to not lift himself up, and he always remembers it all the way in his dying days. He always remembers the fact that he persecuted the church. He says, I have no right to be counted as an apostle, but God chose me. He said, I was born out of due time. And then verse 11, therefore, sorry, verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace was bestowed upon me, which was not in vain. God did not waste his grace upon me. I hope that you and I can echo those very same words in our lives. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I hope that you realize that you did not deserve His grace in your life. When you think of yourself that way, it's hard to lift yourself up in pride. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And He has not wasted His grace on me. I will work on His behalf. That's the words that he uses. I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it's I or they, so we preach and you believed. The gospel is being proclaimed and you're believing. The preaching of the cross and the resurrection has brought people to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you cannot divorce, you cannot separate the resurrection from His crucifixion. That is, the resurrection is as important as the crucifixion in the gospel. I'll say it again, the resurrection of Christ is the foundation for your salvation. And as we said at the beginning, it is the hope of your resurrection. And He'll move from that foundation of your salvation now into the hope of your resurrection in verse number 12. Remember this overarching theme. The resurrection of Christ is your foundation for salvation and it is your hope for resurrection. Let me give you one more verse before we go into verse 12. One, one more verse to help tie your salvation directly to His resurrection. You might remember the verse, Romans chapter 10 and verse number 9. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You see, His resurrection is vitally important for your salvation. It's foundational for your salvation. So why does this even matter? Let's see it in verse 12. Why does it even matter that He raised from the dead? Why does it matter? Verse 12. Now, if Christ be preached that He rose from the dead, how say some of among you that there is no resurrection from the dead? For if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching in vain, and your faith is also in vain. Yea, and we, have found, we are found false witnesses of God, because we've testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom you raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is, is vain, you are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men 
most miserable. He makes a number of if-then arguments. We could call them philosophical arguments. If this, then this. If this, then this. Essentially, he says this. If there's no resurrection, then you can forget about Christ raising from the dead. There has to be a resurrection. And that resurrection, by the way, is your hope for your own resurrection. He raises, He's the first fruit, and we'll see that next week. He's the first fruit from the dead, and we will be the harvest. Because He rose, we will rise. And by the way, if there is no resurrection, there are a lot of problems. I'll do my best to show them to you. I I might call them a massive downward spiral. Have you ever seen water maybe in a sink? Use a toilet could even be an example. Water in the sink, and you open the hole at the bottom, and then the water rushes out. Have you ever watched that? It spirals as it goes down, right? And the, the further down it goes, the stronger it gets. So that if you start off with a little bit of opening, the water is slowly working its way. But the longer it does this, the worse the spiral gets. And that's what I'm seeing in this argument. He's going to give us three problems. And in those problems, if you start with problem number one, it leads you to problem number two. Problem two leads you to problem number three. And problem number three, it's hopeless. Forget about it. So we're going to start this downward spiral. If this, then that. If this, then that. Let's watch this downward spiral. It's going to get vicious as we go. There's a number of problems here. So problem number one, what if there is no resurrection? If there's no resurrection, then what? And he makes this argument four times. It's in verse number 12. If Christ be preached that he wrote, he Rose from the dead, how say, here's the first one, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? So if there's no resurrection of the dead, he said in verse 12, verse 13, if there be no resurrection of the dead, that's the second time he makes a statement. Third one is at the end of verse 15, if so be that the dead rise not. And the fourth one, verse 16, if the dead rise not. So that's our problem. Problem number one, if the dead don't rise then what? And the answer is, well, then Christ isn't risen. If the dead don't rise, then Christ is not risen. You might remember the story of Lazarus in John chapter 11. Four days had passed since Lazarus had died. Jesus intentionally had not come to Bethany. I'll say it even further. Jesus let Lazarus die. And if you read the story, you'll understand that statement. Jesus made the statement to the the effect that because he died, then I will receive glory. Oh, he would have received glory if he had gone five days earlier and healed him as a sick man, but we already knew that he heals the sick. And so here Jesus delayed his coming to Bethany, and on the way he made the statement to the disciples. You might remember the statement, Lazarus sleeps. You see how important that term is for believers? You see, for the believer, death is not permanent. Lazarus sleeps, and the disciples, they said, well, Lord, if he's sleeping, that'll be good because his body is resting, and maybe he'll heal from this. Jesus goes, no, no, no. I didn't mean sleep like that kind of sleep. He's dead. They're not even there yet. Nobody's come to tell him. He knows it. He knows all things. They arrive. And as he's walking into Bethany, you might remember Martha comes running to him. Martha was the one who was always known for doing work, but this is a house cry. They buried him on the first day that he died. That's their custom. They buried him on the first day, but they continue to mourn for seven days. We're four days into this now. Martha comes running to Jesus. She's not cooking. She's not setting the table. She's not serving anybody. She's broken and she's mourning. She does not understand that Jesus Christ is going to rise her brother from the dead. She doesn't know that. She runs out and meets Jesus in the road as he comes. And it's almost I could just see as she grabs a hold of him. Jesus, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. Oh, they knew he could heal their brother. 
And Jesus makes a statement to her. He says, he will rise. And she says, oh, I know, I know, I know. At the last day, he'll rise. And Jesus responds with these words. And I want you to hear the words that he says. This is John 11, verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Friend, His resurrection is foundational for our salvation and His resurrection is our hope for our own resurrection. For the day will come if the Lord tarries and the rapture doesn't happen, the day will come when it will be my body laid in a coffin. And I need hope for the life that comes after for I will not be left in the place of the dead. Oh, He will raise me up. Why? Because He's the resurrection. Not, I have the power of resurrection. It is, I am the resurrection and I'm the life. And He that believeth in Me, though He were dead, yet shall He live. He is the resurrection. He is the life. He's the one that gave life in the garden, formed man from the dust, breathed into him the breath of life. He's the one that sustains us. And He's the one that will rise us all from the dead. With a trump. And the last sound, He will appear and we will rise to be with Him. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. But in this argument, Paul says, take away the resurrection. Christ is dead. Problem number two. Well, what if Christ is not raised from the dead? So let's start with, there's no death or no resurrection from the dead. Well, that leaves Jesus in the tomb. So what happens if Jesus is not raised? What if Jesus is not raised? You can see this in verse number 14. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we testified of God that He was raised up from the dead. So here's the statement. If Christ is not raised from the dead, then our preaching is vain. This is not just you can't trust the preacher. It's you can't trust the message. It's one thing that you can't trust the preacher. It's an entirely different thing when you remove the preacher out of the way and another preacher comes with the same message and you can't trust the message. That's a big deal. If you can't trust the message, then we're hopeless. Romans chapter 4 and verse 25. This is at the end of a long sentence. Who? I'm going to just replace with Jesus. Just speaking of Jesus in Romans 4, Jesus was delivered for our offenses and He was raised again for our justification. So book of Romans chapter 4, the chapter about our faith. We trust Him. We trust that He was raised and He was raised for our justification. And don't take that to mean our salvation and then we come and in His, His resurrection now gives us justification. No, it's His resurrection is God's stamp of approval to show you and I and prove to you and I that we are right with God because of His work on the cross. So He goes to the cross. He takes our sin upon Himself. He gives us His righteousness. You believe on Him, He gives you His righteousness. And how do you know that you got His righteousness? Because Jesus rose from the dead. God said, I put my stamp of approval on Jesus. Now you take away Jesus raising from the dead, you know what you're left with? Everything that every other religion has. A dead God. And yet our Savior is risen from the dead. He lives. So our faith would be in vain if He's there and He's in the tomb still, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. You see that one also in verse number 14. If Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain and your faith is in vain. Literally speaking, we're wasting our time preaching and you're wasting your time believing. I'll unpack that more when we get to the third problem. Then also you'll notice that we are false witnesses of God. Yay, verse 15. We are found false witnesses. In other words, I'm a liar. That's a terrifying thought. I'm a liar. And God can't be trusted. Your faith is worthless. If Jesus is still in the grave, then your faith is worthless. Why do you even believe in? Liars. All the Old Testament prophets would be liars. 
All the New Testament epistles written are worthless. But there are deep, far-reaching implications of the resurrection of Christ from the dead. So problem number three. We make our way around. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then your faith and our preaching and we're liars, well then now what? What happens if your faith is vain? If your faith is vain, let's go on that last circle. Here it is. If your faith is vain... This one will drive the point home. Look at verse number 17. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. You are yet in your sins. That alone should shake you to the core. If He is not raised from the dead, your faith is vain. And if your faith is vain, you are still in your sin. Do you remember the part where I said His resurrection is vitally tied, foundationally important for your salvation? If His resurrection did not happen, you're still lost in your sin. That's terrifying. And then He goes one step further. Verse 18, Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. Those who have put their trust in Christ and have died, they're in hell. That's terrifying. This is what I mean by this is a vicious spiral. It just gets worse and worse the further you go down. And it all starts with one plug. Do the dead raise? Of course the dead raise. What else? Verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most Miserable. Don't think of the word miserable as in you're in misery. And you say somebody in misery, maybe they got sores all over their body and they're in pain all the time. That's not the meaning of miserable here. The meaning of miserable is you're, you should be pitied. We should look on you with pity. I think the best example of this, I don't know if you've ever gone somewhere like a zoo. Our best example here would be the nature park. You can go to the nature park, or you can go down to Adventure Park, and you see Tripla Puk Puk Staplo Adventure Park, or go inside Nature Park, and you can see they've got the uh, long blood tail couple. The tree kangaroo is there in the trees. You see that animal. They're to be pitied. Here's what I mean. That giant crocodile, overfed, Lays in that dirty water all the time. He lays there and he thinks, what a life. They bring me a chicken twice a week. I lay here in the mud. Sometimes I come up and enjoy the sun. And then I go back and I lay in the mud. And I come up and I enjoy the sun. What a life. That thing's to be pitied. He knows nothing about a moving stream. He knows nothing about hunting anything. He's to be pitied. He thinks he has the life. We stand there and go, giant crocodile. But my goodness, he doesn't know what life really is. I think of it like this. I don't know if you've ever seen an ant farm. When I was a kid, I had an ant farm. An ant farm is a little box about this, this wide, about that tall, really thin, glass on both sides and you put sand inside the ant farm and then you put ants inside the ant farm and you can watch the ants as they dig their intricate little tunnels inside of there and those ants you can just watch them you set them on the desk and just watch them leave them there for a day come back and there are tunnels all through they've made themselves little castles inside their ant farm and every day you come and you bring food maybe a couple of little leaves, and they cut up those leaves, and they take them down to their queen, and they work their way back and forth, and they've got their little ant eggs, and they think, this is the life. And they have no idea what it's like to climb a tree. They have no idea what it's like to go and find a chicken bone. They have no idea what it's like to work themselves a little army that comes into your house and goes across your wall. They don't know any of that stuff. They're to be pitied. Sit there and look at them, and they go back and forth, and they think, we got the life. 
And you realize that if Christ is not raised from the dead, we come to church and we just enjoy ourselves and we sing our songs and we talk about, oh, hallelujah, He saved me from my sins. But if Christ is not raised from the dead, we're to be pitied. We're wasting our time. We might as well eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die and it's all over with. So if there's no resurrection from the dead, Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is in vain. And if your faith is in vain, those who have gone before, they've died and gone to hell, and you're to be pitied because we're just wasting our time coming to church. You see, the resurrection is a pretty important thing. Look at verse 20 with me, and we'll close with that. Verse number 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Remember how important that word slept was? He did rise from the dead. There is a resurrection from the dead. Your faith is not in vain. You are, 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8, you are doing spiritual disciplines in your life. You are living a holy life and it's going to carry forth fruit in this life and the life that is to come. You're not wasting your time, friend. You're following the Lord Jesus and there's going to be fruit from it. Oh, He's risen and He is risen as the first fruit for those who sleep. And we'll see more of that next week, the rest of chapter 15. I hope that your hope is found in Christ, the risen Christ. He is our hope in life and in death. I'm going to do something we don't normally do. I'm going to close with song. I'm going to ask Brother Eric to come, the musicians to come. I'm going to close with a word of prayer. I'm going to stand off to the side. If you have never put your trust in the Lord Jesus and you'd like to talk to somebody about that, I'd love to invite you to come and talk to me about it. For He is risen and your faith can be real. I'll be standing off to the side. You're welcome to come and see me. Brother Eric's going to lead us in the song. I'm going to pray. As soon as I finish praying, I'll invite you to stand and sing along with us. Pay attention to the words, for He is our hope in life and in death. Father, I thank You for Your goodness upon us. I thank You that You sent the Lord Jesus to the cross for our sins and He was buried and that He rose again according to the Scriptures. And it's because of His resurrection that we know we're justified. And we know that our sins have been taken on the cross. And we know that one day, You'll raise us as well. So I ask that You would work in our hearts, draw us to love the resurrection of the Savior. In Jesus' name, Amen.